I was out for about 20 seconds. Um, there were a few issues regarding spinal uh, injuries and that sort of stuff, but uh, I guess that was the moment when my career ended. Um, so I went from being a 22-year-old, living the dream of being an AFL footballer, trying to attack it as best he could, to suddenly having a, a minor brain injury and not being able to pursue the sport that he loves, the career that he loves, and going and being forced to, I guess, to go into a completely different career. Welcome to UQ Changemakers, a podcast series where we interview some of the most influential and inspiring members of the UQ community. My name is Belinda McDougall. And I'm Katie Rowney. In this episode, we tackle the issue of concussion in sport and chat with UQ student and former AFL star Justin Clark. Justin was at the peak of his game as a key defender for the Brisbane Lions when a freak accident at training in 2016 brought an early end to his career at just 22 years of age. He is now an advocate for concussion research through the Queensland Brain Institute and despite ongoing symptoms, is focused on completing his degree in aerospace engineering. Justin, welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, we want to go back to 2016 and understand where you were in your career as you went into that season. What had you achieved and where were you going? So at that point in time, it was uh, a very normal pre-season, uh, just getting through day-to-day training, um, tackling all, my, all the little bits and pieces that I needed to improve on um, to become a better footballer and trying to attack that as best as possible. Like For example, my, my footwork had a few issues and all these little bits and pieces that for me to, to develop into a better footballer, uh, I had to really improve on. So I was part of the, I felt as though I was part of the best 22 and I hadn't been dropped in the years before that. Um, so I was part of the uh, senior 22 and wanting to really establish myself as uh, being part of a good team and being a strong component of that. So that was your goal, but of course something happened that made you have to change your perspectives and goals. Can you walk us through that day? Yeah, so I can't remember too much from that period, um, but I guess it was a very normal pre-season, um, pre-season day, I guess. Uh, it was a Monday uh, in January. Um, we'd had boxing in the morning and some weights and then main session in the afternoon and it was getting to a really fun part of the season uh, where of the pre-season. Pre-season's horrible, um, but you, you get to a point where you start to play a game and there's game simulations and you start to actually really enjoy the training and want to get to training in the morning rather than just waking up and think, oh no, I've got to, got to run another 2K or, or all that sort of stuff. So um, game simulation and it was a very, very normal game simulation. Not too much contact involved with it, but um, unfortunately for me, it was a very basic uh, marking contest that I was involved with got flipped over mid-air um, and as I came over my head collected a player's knee that was running in the opposite direction. Uh, so I was out for about 20 seconds, um, there were a few issues regarding spinal uh, injuries and that sort of stuff but uh, I guess that was the moment when my career ended. Um, so I went from being a 22 year old, um, living the dream of being an AFL footballer, uh, trying to attack it as best he could to suddenly uh, having a, a minor brain injury and um, not being able to pursue the sport that he loves, the career that he loves, um, 
and going and being forced to I guess to go into a completely different career. So I grew up watching AFL and I've seen some cracking screamers go wrong. Um, what you know, most people get up and shake their head and off they go and play. But what happened to you from that moment forwards? Yeah, I, and that's something that I've been in plenty worse um, situations than that, uh, and I haven't been concussed or concussed badly. Um, and so that was a surprising thing. I sort of thought that I might have a week off, um, <laughs> which is in preseason, as I said, it might be not such a bad thing to have a little holiday. Um, but it, the symptoms of uh, not being able to concentrate, having to be put in a, a dark room with minimal noise, no TV, no screens. Um, that was sort of that that period which should have been a week just stretched out um, for one week, two weeks, three weeks and until it started to become a month past, um, which is when we started to do a bit more formal testing in terms of going and see the neuropsychologist to assess exactly what's going on with my uh, head in terms of is there memory loss, is there permanent damage, is there cognitive um, loss as well. So that was sort of the progression from that point on. Um, and I guess it was, I know that I had a lot of a lot of troubles in terms of physical activity as well. I couldn't couldn't run at all. I, I was, couldn't run. I couldn't. I could barely walk. Getting up and down the stairs of my Queenslander were was really difficult. Um, and so I'd only be able to get outside and and walk along the the path in in a park during night um, when it was a bit cooler. Because as soon as my heart rate was even elevated, sort of above. 85, 90 beats per minute, I'd start to really struggle and I'd lie down on the ground and sort of have a little nap in the middle of this park and I'd, I'd always walk with my dog and she'd sort of sit next to me and look after me and uh, once I was right to go, then off we'd, off we'd walk again. So it was just progressing that from uh, a very basic walk and walking maybe 500 metres to 600, 700 metres, 800 metres, finally hit the K. Um, I remember... Uh, I, I couldn't t- tell you how long post it was, but uh, I think it was about maybe two two months, two or three months post that when I first ran again. Um, it was at West End, I think the markets were on, and it was a nice quiet morning, and uh, I, I had a little little run, and that feeling that oh, yeah, that there is some 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 improvement uh, was something that was really nice to be able to see that there was improvement going on. But it was very very slow going in terms of coming back from what should have been a very short-term injury and an injury that shouldn't have stopped a career. You said that it took a couple of days before you realised that you needed some additional testing. So what sort of tests were they? What did they discover? Yeah, so it was, uh, I think it was uh, three days post. Uh, we did a, a SCAT-3 assessment, which is a very common sporting assessment, which is uh, very basic concentration, memory. Um, uh, it'll be on a computer and they'll uh, flip cards and you'll work out, you know, try and remember what cards have been shown, what haven't been shown. Very basic memory and pattern awareness. Uh, and I managed to pass that test very early on, which is really surprising. And it shows, I guess, how hard these things are to quantify and to make it objective rather than subjective. So from there, we went another two weeks I think two, two, two weeks to about a month where we were waiting for me to get well enough to be able to actually concentrate for an extended period of time because the neuropsychology 
testing, neuropsychological testing, is taken over maybe three, three or four hours, and I was uh, I had to do that uh, in I'd have a week between each one, and I'd do it in an hour block, and by the end of that hour. I would be able to do nothing for the rest of the day and for the next day and a bit I'd be at home completely um, yeah, very, very, very quiet in terms of what I was doing for the rest of that, that week. But the purpose of that testing uh, was to measure my cognitive and memory function, which was very hard because I didn't have a baseline to compare it against to. Um, but as a rough guide, uh, what they were looking for was a, a match between cognitive and memory function. All of the MRIs that I'd had as well came up completely clear. Structurally, it was completely sound. You know, there's no reason why I shouldn't have been able to recover quicker, except I didn't. Um, and so what the what the neuropsychological testing enabled us to do is to actually quantify some of what wasn't shown by the scans and work out uh, where we can improve. So my certain aspects of my memory was... It, significantly down so about a third of where my cognitive function was and as a rough estimate they should have been roughly equal so it it didn't come as a surprise to me because my memory was so bad again if i was going for the walk i'd often uh, call mum and dad or i'd try to call mum and dad but i know for them it was really difficult because i would slur my words a lot and i'd get lost mid-sentence so i would completely lose my track uh, my train of thought in a conversation I'd be raring to go with something to say and then I'd lose my place slur my words stop and then completely forget it that'd have to remind me then I'd forget again and so conversations were extremely hard and being 2000 k's away from them didn't really help too much either so um, for them it was it was quite difficult as well that must have been frustrating as an elite athlete being so strong and capable to suddenly not even being able to walk um, yeah. too far without having to take a rest. Yeah, uh, exactly. I mean, I was in peak condition. I was um, a young man wanting to do what my body could do uh, and take my head off and just look at what was underneath and I was fine. I was completely fine. I was ready for action. I was ready for the season. Um, and champing at the bit to actually get in and play games. But uh, it was just my head and nothing to do with my muscles that was stopping me, which is something that was extremely frustrating. Um, but I guess fortunately I can't remember too much of that those feelings because, um, yeah, my memory was pretty badly affected. So uh, and n- not long term, but just sort of that period, it's it's very fuzzy. So I guess I don't have too many mental scars from that period. Like I, I just don't know what what I was really thinking or what I was going through at that point in time. It would have been a very difficult period for you and I know you say you can't remember it and perhaps that's a blessing, but had you ever considered seeking some help to deal with it mentally? Because it would have been very confronting and very challenging emotionally and mentally to deal with that kind of thing. Uh, I never really uh, went to see anybody uh, at all. I, I guess I just tried to get on with things as best as possible. Um, so. I think in semester two of that that year, so about six months later, I enrolled. Uh, I'd, I'd enrolled myself in UQ beforehand. I'd forgotten that I'd actually enrolled myself, um, and what degree I'd. I'd I mean, that put happens myself. to a lot of our students. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, so I didn't really know what I'd put myself down for. Um, but then I ended up doing a, a very basic um, engineering, first year engineering course. 
I guess that pulled me forwards rather than keeping me stuck in what was going on and the the downsides um, because as a kid I'd always been very strong uh, with my academic um, results and was much more focused on academic uh, side of things rather than sporting. Uh, sport was always something that I really enjoyed and it was an outlet but school was what I loved doing. Um, so I never thought that I was going to get drafted in the first first place. I always thought that I was going to go to Adelaide, go to uni, study aerospace engineering and, and go from there. So uh, I guess my life restarted in a way at that point in time um, because it had been put on hold at the moment when I'd got drafted. Um, and so that little chunk of time, which was so surprising to me, stopped and then I was back on the, the old path that I always thought that I was going to be on. So um, I guess there was always a lot of positives in terms of I'm going to be coming out of my degree at a bit younger age and that is not a bad thing. Um, hopefully it will make me more competitive and and there'll be upside in that. And I guess that's the takeaway from it was that, yes, I've lost something massive, but there is still a lot of positives to go along with. So as long as I can um, pursue that, in a decent manner, then there's no reason why I should be downcast about life. And I believe you got your pilot's licence while you were still in high school. So obviously this is a career you've been wanting for a while. Yeah. Why are you interested in it? Uh, again, uh, country kid um, on a farm. We always had big wedgetail eagles that would get up on the thermals, particularly out of block that was a little bit north of our place and there were some really good thermals that they'd always uh, go off there and it was so cool even from a young kid I'd just um, look out the the ute window with dad and I'd go how cool is that and then I'd ask him a million questions about how it worked how they were doing it what they were doing you know how they fed what how long was their wingspan all this stuff and he'd sort of try and navigate all the questions as best (laughs) as he could but I know um again sort of half hour trip between that block and home and I'd ask him a bajillion questions on the way up and then I'd be falling asleep on the way home (laughs) because I'd just be knackered from asking all the questions and being so fascinated by the wildlife and everything that was there but I guess from from being so fascinated with those wedgies as a kid uh, I guess it uh, went and transitioned into being passionate about school and asking a lot of questions at school and enjoying maths and that sort of stuff. My uncle uh, is a pilot and a glider pilot in the past. And he, uh, I guess, introduced me to the fact that you can be a pilot, um, which was really cool. And then through school, uh, there was an opportunity to go over to another school uh, in Port Pirie and, and have a crack at learning how to fly a plane as part of a schooling subject and I thought oh you beauty <laughs> like, how good's that uh, and so that that was where it sort of really um, escalated in terms of being a bit of an interest to being something that I was really really interested in and wanted to sort of pursue uh, and so I guess doing that subject then the next uh, obvious step for me was oh how cool would it be to be a pilot in the Air Force? Um, and so I applied in year 11 and too I got, got not back for being too tall. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I went, well, then what would be just as cool as flying? And I guess I guess designing them or being involved in them, that would be pretty, pretty neat. So uh, that was when I sort of started to set aerospace engineering as being my goal um, post-school. 
School was your love and not something everyone can say, but sport was a hobby, which is fantastic. What did it feel like to get drafted? How did that process happen for you? Uh, so I was playing country footy. Um, throughout north of Adelaide, I was very much a country footballer. Um, didn't go to private school to pursue footballing. There was a couple opportunities that sort of uh, popped up where teams would say, well, do you want to come down to Adelaide and play for us? And I'd go, no, I'm not going to travel three hours there and back. Uh, or there and then another three hours back just to go to training and play on the weekend that's that's not fair on myself or on and my studies or my parents either so um i just played country footy I'd, i was playing against men uh when i was about 15 uh, i think that i first started playing against men so uh, i was exposed to a reasonable level of football at that point in time and in a different way to the what the kids in adelaide would have been and and the the players that were playing in state league and against other state representatives. Um, so I guess I was very, it was very unlikely for me to get drafted at that point in time. Um, in year 12, I'd been uh, fortunate enough to play a bit of association and zone level football against other country footballers. Um, so there was a bit of promise that I was showing there and uh, the team, uh, North Adelaide in the SANFL, uh, they said, don't stress about training, just come down in the school holidays, play one game for us, that's all we ask, and then next year you can come down. So I played one game in the reserves, um, did okay, managed to get in the best players. Um, and then from that, uh, two weeks, I think it was two weeks later, I was sitting studying in a room and Dad walks in and says, oh, oh Justin, um, you, you won't believe who I've got on the phone. And I say, oh, no. Nah, Right, Dad, who, who's after me? And, you know, it's it's the Sydney Swans. <laughs> oh, <laughs> what? That's, that's ridiculous. It was just so far out of what I'd ever conceived. It was something that was really unexpected and just completely mind-blowing at that point in time. Um, and so from that point on, it was getting calls from recruiters about what was going on and they'd come down and watch, watch country footy in the middle of the bush Um <laughs> to sort of look at this kid and say we can't compare him against anything that we know about but should we give him a shot um and so that was sort of my uh, I guess the opportunity that I took and then uh, I was fortunate enough um that the Lions asked me up to uh, do some training before the rookie draft and they took a bit of a, a punt on me and yeah so I was extremely fortunate um to get drafted and very thankful that the Lions took the risk that they did. How hard was it to make that decision then to retire from football? What led to that? Uh, I guess the moment I knew that I was going to retire was the last session of the neuropsych um, analysis where I got told that my memory was a third, or yeah, aspects of my memory was a third of what it should have been. And I went, that's not okay. Um, and I'm, I'm definitely not okay with uh, running the risk of... Um, having further brain injuries. Uh, additionally, she, uh, the lady sort of told me you'd be an idiot to play football again. Um, and I guess at that point in time, I knew that I had to play, uh, had to retire, no matter how many people I was letting down. Um, because I guess, first and foremost, I, was, I felt like I was letting myself down in a way that I'd worked so hard and come from so far back um, to be able to get to this point. But also... All the people that had sort of come on that ride with me um, in my hometown to have the whole the whole community was sort of 
on the ride with me in a way. So it was a little bit tough to to realise that yeah I was sort of letting them down in a way and they've been fantastic and very much understanding but I guess I still feel that I've let them down in a little way um so yeah I guess that was when I knew uh that my career was going to end um in terms of the decision making process it was extremely easy because I got told you're not playing football again uh I guess I was more scared uh, so after that uh, testing, I went down to Melbourne to see a neurologist down there, and he told me the same thing. But when I was but before I saw him, I was dead scared that he was going to say, uh, "It's your choice," because that's when it would have been extremely difficult to have made a decision. I, I would have had so many conflicting emotions. I would have wanted to keep trying, but then there was the risk. I honestly don't know what path I would have gone down. Um, so to have that decision taken away from me was something that was really, really fortunate. You spoke about the decision was taken away from you, um, which made it easier for you. How do you feel when you do see some of these um, athletes decide to keep playing on despite having some very serious knocks? I guess there's there's two two parts to that question. Uh, the first part is the fact that uh, in, a, in a game, uh, athletes will just want to compete they will do whatever it takes to keep on playing you know um i've had uh, and i'll just use myself as a an example but you know you you'll pop a shoulder out and you'll get a local anesthetic strap it back up and you're back out there in in five minutes because that's what you want to do that's what you do for the team and that's that's not to say that i'm brave or anything that's just what um competitors at the elite level will do they'll do whatever it takes to keep on competing because that's what they love it's what you're trained to do it's it's what you want to do so i guess in terms of that uh, it's really difficult with concussion um for a player to say no i'm out uh, and nearly impossible for them to so that's where i think that it's really important that we get the testing in place and having have accurate tests so that we know if the player is concussed or not so that we can take the decision away from them whether or not they go back out uh, into the field. Um, And it's something that uh, the testing needs to be good enough so that whether it's safe or not is identified and accurately diagnosed, essentially. Um, I guess the second part to it is the athletes that have had the concussion have finished the game and then they're looking at it. Uh, And that's that's a side of things that's really really difficult and again it comes to research so we can know what and and accurately diagnose what the condition is and the risks associated with it um so i I guess ideally every player has that decision taken away from them um and if they choose um to go against medical opinion well then that's that's their prerogative and and good luck to them but the medical opinion it would be really nice if we're in a place where the medical opinion was sufficiently strong that the player doesn't have to make a decision um where it's oh it's up to you mate which leads into the question really are we doing enough to promote the issue and are sporting teams themselves doing enough to protect their players i wholeheartedly feel as though afl is I don't know enough about NRL and, and Union and the other um, big contact sports um, to make an educated opinion uh, on that. Um, the use of video analysis, uh, the research, uh, sorry, the protocols 
uh, around what happens after a, a big hit or if there's suspicion of concussion. Everything around that is really, really good um, because it is at a point now where the decision is pretty well taken away from the player. Um, and that's that's a really good thing. And it's, it's much safer nowadays for players um, compared to the past. Uh, I think that pretty well every club and every individual is aware of the issue because at some point or other, or another either you or someone you know in one of those teams has had concussion and has been affected by it um whether it's permanent or not uh you sort of look after your mates and try and um uh protect them as much as you can from themselves in in those sort of uh, situations and i think that's something that's really really well understood what i feel as though is going to drive the the improvement of safety and and the um hopefully allow more players to keep on playing uh, in a safe way is the research uh, and that's where it's it's really important because that's what drives the protocols and and the policies so i'm at the queensland brain institute with senior research fellow dr fatima nasrallah who is one of the scientists working on a major concussion research study Dr. Nasrallah, can you explain to us what concussion is and what it actually does to the brain? Concussion is a knock to the head, defined as a knock to the head, and um, it can be of various severities, whether mild, moderate or severe. And uh, what it really does to the, to the head, um, from a mechanism point of view, is that once the head is hit by a force, the brain inside the head or the skull starts to move around and hit the sides of the brain. And depending on the severity of that impact, um, the consequences can vary. So you're doing a concussion study at the moment. Um, can you describe the, the aim of that study and also the processes? Yes, yeah, so um, we're aiming to make sports a better um, and safer uh, way to play. In a, in a sense. So what we're aiming to do is determine the recovery period after a concussion. At the moment, most clubs identify um, the time to sit out very arbitrarily, whether it's a week and based on clinical symptoms. But we know that the clinical symptoms that the players um, experience are not really related to what's actually happening at the level of the brain. So you might your symptoms might clear out in a week or so, but the brain still is trying to heal and those timings don't really correlate. So we're trying to use magnetic resonance technology to be able to determine what is happening at the level of the brain and how long it's taking for the brain to recover after an impact. Because, I mean, it's a very important part of our body and it's so complex, isn't it? It's very complex. I mean, you can you can um, extrapolate from a knee injury, for example. That's something that we can feel. If your knee is injured, you can't move around, and uh, you wait until it heals. And obviously, you can't play until it's healed. With the brain, it's a very complex organism that is, uh, um, if it gets injured, it's able to compensate for the injury, but it doesn't mean that it's not hurt. So if you keep on damaging it while it's trying to heal itself that's where the longer term consequences lie. And that's what we're trying to understand because if we can identify what that real recovery period is, we'd be able to devise proper guidelines of when people need to go back to play. So what are the processes um, of the study? So um, people would have to come in for a baseline scan. What we've identified is that um, 
if you have a scan, every person is very different. And if you were to take a person who's had a concussion and compare them to somebody who's completely normal, it's not really relevant. So what we're trying to do in this study, which makes it a bit more difficult, is to get every person's baseline scan when they haven't had a concussion for at least six months. We get them to come for an MRI to take a saliva sample. Um, and then once they've had a concussion, then they come back within the first 36 hours and then at 7, 14 and 30 days. And that's how we monitor the progression of the injury over time and we can devise what time exactly the brain has sort of healed compared to the clinical symptoms. And at each of those time points, we take a saliva sample. And so the whole aim at the end is to be able to come up with a sample, the, with a marker in the saliva that reflects exactly what's happening at the level of the brain from the MRI scans. And so you'd be able, by the end of this study, hopefully, to just take a saliva sample and say, oh, you know, this marker is elevated. Until this marker comes down back to its original level, this is where the brain has sort of cleared. And that's so simple, just a saliva test rather than bringing them in for... Um... An MRI scan. Yeah. But you need to do the background work to be able to understand how the brain is healing and not, rely, not relate the marker to the clinical symptoms, but relate it to more the brain changes. You're an ambassador for our Queensland Brain Institute. Can you tell me about that role? Yeah, so I guess uh, being at UQ and uh, QBI being at UQ as well, uh, they sort of contacted me and asked me if I'd come on board. And it's something that I immediately thought would be a really worthwhile thing because I guess it's I can add my voice um, to their message. So if we can get more participants in the current study, uh, which is based on uh, concussion and, and considering the baseline levels to uh, what's happening after concussion, uh, then we'll get more understanding. And so it would be remiss of me not to be on board with that. Because it's been a couple of years since your incident now. Where are you? You talk about where you were immediately afterwards, yeah. but how are you today? Uh, it's, it's a really funny one. Um, and I guess it in a, in a lot of ways vindicates my decision to retire um, but the slightest knock and I'm uh, pretty cactus I guess would be a term that I could use um, so yeah for example it's the weekend got a bump on my head from closing a, a boot lid and within I'm not sure the time frame I think it might have been a couple of minutes I was on the floor sleeping um, and I can't remember too much of what happened and it was just one of those things that that will happen to me um in terms of how that affects me on ongoing i'm pretty well right with uni and, and concentration wise now which is really really nice and uh i guess i feel as i'm back to normal uh, there's a few things that I, I know that i can't do and activities physical activity is a bit of a roller coaster in terms of uh i can be really good for a little bit but have a little bit of a setback and and really put myself backwards quite a way for example I was doing a bit of rowing with UQ and down in New South Wales states and uh, made the decision to row in 47 degree heat and gave myself a bit of heat stroke which was really silly um, and that really knocked me around for about six months so it was uh, I guess it's on me to be responsible um, but also be aware of how small little incidences will happen it's life how can we sort of uh, maneuver uh, and adjust through those incidences to make sure that the effect is minimised. You 
are still of an age where you could have been in the midst of your career, I mean, we understand that it was an easy decision to make when you're talking about protecting your brain. But do you watch AFL still? And how do you feel? (laughs) Uh, I've only just recently been able to sort of be around footy and and watch AFL. I was never much of a... uh, TV footy watcher like I'd much prefer going outside and playing and doing it myself and having having fun with my mates so uh, if there was an opportunity to play outside versus watch TV then I'd be outside every time so um, I guess I have watched a lot less AFL on on TV but uh, I'm sort of coming back into the into the realms of being a fan where I can watch watch the Lions or the Crows, who are my two teams, and, and watch them and go, you know, I'm, I'm okay with watching it and I don't uh, get frustrated at myself and I don't feel like I'm letting the other players, particularly with the Lions, down um, because I know early on that was a, a pretty strong feeling that I was... I felt as though that I'd be able to... If I was out there, I could help, um, help them um, and sort of help particularly the back line, which is quite young. So I felt like I was letting them down a little bit. But that sort of thing has become more reasonable. I guess I've adjusted to my life now a little bit more. Um, And to the extent where I'm involved with the Western Magpies um, in Sherwood, so uh, doing a bit of uh, assistant coaching out there and and really enjoying it, uh, which is something that I really was surprised about. And it's only reasonably recent that I could get there uh, have a really good session, enjoy the session, but most importantly, drive home happy, um, because that was the part that I always struggled with was the was the drive home afterwards where I'd go, oh, I wish I was able to play still. Um, whereas now I can leave it and go, what a session that was really good. I can't wait until next training. Thanks so much for sharing your story with us. It's been really an interesting journey. Now, before we let you go, we do have a short segment that we call Spare Change in which we get to know you a little bit better, although you have shared a lot, I must admit. But these are some rapid-fire questions. So are you ready? Sure am. Right, here we go. What's the one fact that listeners wouldn't know about you? Uh, I used to play, or when I was a very small kid, I played footy against myself with my two imaginary friends, uh, Mike (laughs) and Tony Modra, who's a famous Adelaide Crows player. (laughs) Did you always win? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Just before, like just after the siren went and kicked the winning goal. Yeah. (laughs) Um, What is the one question that you're sick of being asked? Uh, When are you going to graduate? Good one, good one. Now, if you could go back in time by 10 years, what advice would you give to your younger self? Uh, no, keep, keep sticking at, at it. Uh, don't, don't worry about the bullies too much. They'll be right. Um, and, yeah, keep, keep trying your best at everything that you do. Sounds like you already have taken your own advice there. So who or what is your biggest influence in life? Uh, my dad would definitely be number one. Um, and then close up there with him would be my, my two older brothers and uh, and then one of the assistants at the Lions, uh, Murray Davis, really helped me transition from being a country lad into sort of being a bit more well-rounded human being. Oh, that's lovely. Now, the hardest one everyone says, um, if you had to choose a piece of music that would best describe you, which song would you play? Uh, I reckon I'll go with maybe Rocket Man by Elton John. Love it! Yeah, so I think that, that was... That would, be the one that I'll settle on, yeah. 
That's the end of another episode of UQ Changemakers. If you want to learn more about concussion or take part in the study, you can visit the Queensland Brain Institute's website at qbi.uq.edu.au and click on the Get Involved tab. And while you're online, don't forget to visit Changemakers at uq.edu.au forward slash Changemakers, where you can also subscribe to Changemakers magazine. I'm Belinda McDougall. And I'm Katie Rowney. Our podcast was produced by Michael Jones and Jessica McGore. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends or colleagues, leave a review on iTunes or email us at changemakers at uq.edu.au. If you want to create change, tune in next time when we interview another inspiring member of the UQ community. Thanks for listening.